James chapter 1, 1-8. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laura. Please do keep your Bibles open there, James. We're starting a new series in this letter. It's unique in the Bible. It's a very powerful, punchy letter, and it's very practical. It's concerned with how being a Christian works its way out in the realities of everyday life. And it is perhaps the most practical piece of writing in the New Testament. So our series title will be Faith That Works. Faith That Works. And when I say works, I'm really using that in two senses. One in that it's practical, uh, does things. And secondly, that it's effective, like a, a mobile phone that works. It actually does what it says it will do. Faith that works. James is so practical and hands-on that some Christians historically have struggled with his teaching. They wonder if he um, somehow goes against the idea of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, at one point in chapter 2, get ready for this, James says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Whoa, but that's for chapter two. Look forward to that. This led Martin Luther at one point, the great German reformer, to say James was an epistle of straw. Uh, he was, didn't have such a high regard for it at that moment. But uh, we'll find out that James actually is in line with the rest of the New Testament teaching. He's putting his weight in a different place. Another challenge of James which we'll find is the way he writes. You may have found that when Laura was reading. He seems to jump from one topic to another in a bit of a disconnected way. Um, it's led some readers to conclude that actually James is, isn't really logically connected. It's more just like a collection or an anthology of, of sayings. I think that this is mistaken. There is a logic and inner structure to what James is writing, but you have to work quite hard for it. And he's made it that way to make us think. So today we're going to start off with verses 1 to 8 and these verses set the scene for the letter and they introduce some of the big themes. And I've got one sentence today and this sentence actually encapsulates the whole message. Uh, so if you can grab hold of this you've got, you've got the whole sermon. James is writing to you to change your mind and transform your character. 13 words. James is writing to you to change your mind and transform your character. Firstly, James is writing to you. Verse 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Who is this James? Now, there are four potential candidates in the New Testament who have the name James, 
and they are variously identified. But there's really only one James who could start a letter as he does, very simply, with great authority and needing no further introduction. There was one James who everyone in the early church had heard about, and he was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Jesus' brother. Now, I say half-brother because Jesus had no biological father, a human father, but Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. So Jesus had four brothers. They're listed in Mark's Gospel. And he also had at least two sisters. So Jesus was the oldest of a large family. But James was one of those younger brothers. And this James went on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, the early church, for 30 years. So when Peter and Paul and others traveled the land and went across the seas to take the gospel to other people and to the nations, James stayed put in Jerusalem and taught and preached and led the church and held the line in that core founding community in Jerusalem. So just as we think about this writer at the start of the book, just pause with me and just think for a moment. What was it like to grow up in the house with Jesus? To be Jesus Christ's younger sibling. Now, it's no wonder, is it, that this letter is so practical. James had spent his formative years, child, adolescent, young man, in the presence of a brother who never sinned. In the presence of an older brother who always loved God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength. Who always loved his neighbour as himself. James had spent his, his early life in the presence of Jesus. He had witnessed the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus, firsthand as a sibling. And that makes the next statement absolutely breathtaking. Just look at it again, because I bet it just slid past when we read it. He is a slave or servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, James had come to realise that his brother, who was a real flesh and blood human, was also the Lord. And the Lord is a title that's reserved for God in the Bible. And this statement that he makes here puts Jesus on the level with God the Father, uh, having the same dignity, the same essence, but also acknowledging there's a distinction between God the Father and the Lord Jesus. You see, he's a slave of both of them, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice that I said slave, uh, and I think that in this case it would be a better translation than servant because in our minds the word servant is a person who is an employee who has certain rights a servant can go into work and clock off when they need to if a servant was unhappy with their employment they could quit and go and get another job a slave doesn't have those rights a slave is at the absolute uh, under the absolute authority of his or her master in the ancient world and slave is in bondage to that person could be a good boss could be a bad boss, but either way, the slave has no rights as we think of them. The Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt. Now, by saying he's a slave of God and Jesus Christ, James is doing two things here. He's making two points that the readers knew. Firstly, he's saying he has genuine personal commitment. He's not just writing about something he's heard about or a nice story or reporting some theories. 
His life is one of service to God and to Jesus as Lord. So this means he is a, a reliable spokesperson. He it practices what he preaches. He's authentic. He's not a mere spectator. He's committed. And the second thing that it actually communicates is almost sort of ironic that saying you're a slave of God means he's a leader with great authority. In the Old Testament, the servant of the Lord was a particular title for certain leaders. Certain kings and prophets could say that they were the servant of the Lord, the slave of the Lord. Such a person spoke with great authority and gravitas because they weren't voicing their own ideas and opinions and words. They were speaking, voicing the word of God himself. This slave doesn't speak of his own authority. He only speaks what the master tells him. So a servant of the Lord is someone who's bringing God's word to humanity. It couldn't be any higher authority than that. James is emphasising that he's deeply immersed and committed to the Lord and God and that he speaks to his readers with great authority. So who are these readers? A quite a strange description if you look there in verse 1. They are the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And some people have thought, well, is he only writing to Jewish people? See, the 12 tribes in the, in the Old Testament were the ancient people of God, but they'd been exiled and most of the tribes were actually lost and uh, no one knows where they went. Only two tribes had continued to exist into the period of the New Testament. So who are these 12 tribes now? In the New Testament, they are the people of God chosen by Jesus himself. That's why Jesus chose 12 apostles, 12 disciples to follow him, and designated them to be the leaders of his church. Jesus was consciously saying, this is the new Israel, the new people of God. Jesus was establishing a new Israel who wouldn't be bounded by land and territory and ethnic uh, descent, but fill the whole world with disciples. Now, in the Old Testament, for God's people to be scattered, as he says, scattered among the nations, was usually a bad thing. It was because they'd disobeyed and it was God's judgment on them and they were scattered and the big hope was to all return to the homeland. But in the New Testament, God's people are scattered deliberately and intentionally. And it's a positive thing because they can go and fill the whole world with communities of light. And Jesus even says in his commission in the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go, fill the world. So who is James writing to these scattered 12 tribes? Here's the answer. To every Christian. Wherever they may be. Because every Christian is part of the spiritual Israel. Normed by the Bible. Filled with the spirit of the Lord living in service to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just think about that for one moment. Friends, this means if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, this letter is written to you. It's written to you. James didn't know your name, but through in the power of the Holy Spirit, he writes to you now. The half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself, the servant of the Lord, is writing to you today. You just got a letter on your doormat with your address on the front. You opened it up, had a stamp on it, and you saw this handwriting, and it was James had written to you. 
Will you listen to his voice? Will you receive the truths he wants to tell you? Will you receive it in the spirit in which it was intended? James is writing to you. This isn't just some kind of exercise we're doing here because we do it every week. This letter is for you, friend. He's writing to you. And he's writing to you to change your mind. That's the second point here. To change your mind. What does James want to say to us? What's the, the purpose of his letter? It's to change your mind and transform your character. So James's first emphasis is on our minds. We need to recognise this and see it. Although he's very practical, a changed life begins with a changed way of thinking. Thinking leads to doing, not the other way around. Um, how we think and believe is the way we live and act. And the first chapter of James is full of words that emphasise our understanding. The very first command in the book, if have a look at it there in verse 2, is consider. Consider, it's a thinking word. It's a, it means calculate, reckon. Think about it. Consider this. And in fact, um, one scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, points out that the first chapter has 17 words, all touching on some aspect of knowing or thinking. Knowing and thinking. So James wants to change your mind, to get you to think again about something. And what he's going to tell us to do here is absolutely radical. I think you will find, I'm going to speak to my congregation here, Laura, Dan, I think we will find that it runs against all of our instincts and certainly against all the wisdom of our culture. Will we be ready to take up this challenge? I speak to myself as much as anyone. James says, get ready for it, whenever you face trials, troubles, problems, challenges of any kind, consider them pure joy. <laughs> oh, consider means to calculate, to reckon. It's all about the way you think about things. So what James is saying is this, when the next really bad thing happens in your life, do the maths and calculate that it is pure joy, joy, joy. Right. I told you it was radical. Just think for a moment about the last time you encountered some kind of serious challenge or pr a problem, something that was painful, a trial, a testing situation. Something went wrong in your life. How did you regard it? What did you think about it? I bet you didn't think, oh great, this is pure joy. I, I know I didn't think that. You know, tests and trials in life have many forms, don't they? Some are facing persecution or rejection for being a Christian. That's not fair. Some are, find themselves faced with very fierce, nasty temptations. Such temptations often come in when they're at their weakest. Just at that moment of weakness. That's a trial, a test. Some face money problems. And there's a terrible, uh, weakening, debilitating thing about money. When, you, when you're really facing debt and struggles and you don't know how you're going to meet, make ends meet, it brings a really awful anxiety, or it can do. Some are facing health problems, physical sickness, long-term perhaps, disability, or mental health issues, which we're increasingly aware of in our time. Others are facing relationship issues, hurt, Deep hurt that can only be felt with those who are intimate. Pain, betrayal. Some are struggling with disappointment. Disappointment with their job. Disappointed in love. 
disappointment with their studies, whatever it may be. How did you regard the trial when it came? What did you think about it? James is saying, I want you to think about this kind of thing entirely differently. It's, it's so important to him that as soon as he starts the letter, it doesn't muck about it. It's verse one, verse two, straight into it, right off the bat. As soon as he starts, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So what does, reason does James give for this outrageous command? The answer is that there is a God. And this God is unbelievably generous and kind. Look at verse 5. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God gives generously. He's a generous God. And he gives ungrudgingly. He doesn't say, well, you don't really deserve it. He just is an open, warm, generous father. And this God is the one who is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He knows all things. And this is the God that we are called, taught to call upon as a Christian. And we're not just to call upon him as dear God. What did we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus himself authorizes us to call upon God as our heavenly Father. People didn't do that before the Lord's Prayer. So he's not a distant deity like the God of the Deists. The Deists was a movement in the 17th, 18th century. They believed in a God, uh, a creator, but for them, God was kind of like a watchmaker who set up the world and the cosmos to run like clockwork with all the laws of nature, and then he'd just kind of gone away. He wasn't actively involved, he just ran. Distant, cold. The God of the Bible is, is not that. He's intimately involved with his people all the time. He's warm. He's involved. He loves them. Next week, we're going to think about verses 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose us. That's the God we call upon. And so what this does to our worldview, the way we think about life, is to make us realise that this world... It's not a kind of closed system in which things happen by the laws of nature or by chance, fate or luck. There is no such thing as chance, fate or luck in the Bible's worldview, although there are the laws of nature. The biblical worldview is that this universe is an open system in which God, who we don't see, is working all the time for the good of those who love him. Human life exists within an open system, ordered by a God who constantly gives gifts to people. That is the perspective of faith. God is in your life right now, even though you can't see him. And that's, this gives us a different understanding of reality that changes our view of trials and tests. It actually ought to change them into a positive one, not pretending that those things themselves are good. They may be very, very awful, but that somehow my loving Heavenly Father has only allowed this thing into my life to cause good, ultimately. And if you're struggling to understand that, and, and we are right to struggle, you're in good company. That's why James writes verse 5. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it and he will give it to you. What kind of wisdom are we talking about here? The kind of wisdom that struggles to understand how God could be working through trials. 
So ask God to help you. And the key to all this, according to James, is in our minds. It's how we calculate the difficulties. And James is saying our calculations are way off. We've been wrong all our lives. Because we tend to assume, don't we, that if we have a serious problem, one of the following applies. Let me see if, if, one, if this is, one of these is you. Number one, God must be punishing me for something bad that I've done, but I don't know what it is. Ouch. Two, God has actually forgotten about me and he's busy or looking somewhere else. Lord, where are you? How long will you be? Three, God is active. He's doing something mysterious, but I don't have a clue what it is. And I wish he would stop because I think I know better how to run my life. <laughs> or four, maybe God doesn't exist after all. Maybe I, maybe I can't believe in it. After all, surely if there is a God, he wouldn't treat me like this. James says you are dead wrong, whichever of those four you were thinking. You have been wrong all your life. And you need to utterly rethink and recalculate what is going on when you face a difficulty. Because when you have a loving Heavenly Father who is actively and constantly involved in your life, then you can calculate trials as pure joy. Now, if we don't do this, there's a warning in the text. And I want to just point you back to it. Um, in verse 6, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. You see waves. If you've ever been down at the beach, you see waves coming in and out. And they look like they've got power and strength and sparkle. But a wave is the most unstable thing going. It's driven by other forces. It's not intrinsically strong and stable and powerful. A wave just comes in and crashes and it's gone. It's absolutely shifting and unstable. And this text is a warning to us not to be like a wave. Don't be like a wave that's unstable and just driven by the events around it and the circumstances around it. Don't be like that. To be unstable and double-minded. Be different. You can calculate trials as pure joy, James says, because trials transform your character. And this is the third and final point. Remember that sentence James is writing to you to change your mind and transform your character. Look back with me in verses three to four. Here's the key. Consider it pure joy, it's verse two, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's the key. You see, the trial, the test, whatever it is that God is sending into your life is not redundant. It's not random. It is doing something good, even something beautiful, if we will let it. it here's what he says. It is producing a product perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, who wants to be an immature person? Who wants to be an incomplete person? Nobody. None of us sign up for that. We want to be mature. We want to be whole. Here's the bite. According to the Bible, the way you grow up, the way you grow up to be a whole person, a mature person, is through trials and through learning perseverance. The testing of your faith 
produces perseverance. And this perseverance is also known as patience or endurance or fortitude. So it's strength uh, under challenge. It's grace under pressure. It's patience under testing. It's endurance through hardship. Without the test, such qualities will not develop in a person's character. Let me say that again. Without the test, such qualities will not develop in a person's character. And you know, things in life are only tested when they're important. Engineers do not test scrap metal because scrap metal is only good for one thing. It gets put on the scrap heap and then eventually gets melted down. But engineers do test cars. They test them rigorously because cars are important and they can change our life and they can, could damage our life. Here is the key to this calculation, this radical rethink about our lives. God is using every trial to test you and to develop you into something beautiful, someone good and mature, not lacking anything, someone whole. A newly made cricket bat, did you know all cricket bats are made of willow, certain kind of beautiful wood? And when the bat is first made, a beautiful new cricket bat, it's actually not ready to be used. And if you were to play cricket with a brand new bat, it would break. Cricket bats have to be, because it's lacking something, cricket bats have to be, the phrase is, knocked in before they can be used. And knocking in takes about six hours. And it, knocking in is done by getting a, a small mallet or a hard cricket ball and literally knocking, hammering the surface of the wood again and again and again, hundreds of times, until the wood is 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 knocked in and it becomes compact, strong and able to do the job. They recommend that you start it by hitting a mallet against the cricket blade firmly but not hard and increase the pressure after an hour and after two hours you can hit the mallet quite hard against the blade and after six hours the bat is actually ready to use. See when trials come in our lives God is knocking us in. He's actually strengthening our character. And he's making us more beautiful. I'm going to use another illustration now of a Japanese technique called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, kintsugi. This is a, a, a technique used in the world of Japanese porcelain. Dad's, Dan's uh, smiling, he knows about this. It, in this technique, the craftsman, craftswoman would have a porcelain bowl, perfectly round, made of very beautiful, delicate china, very thin with exquisite patterns and painting under the glass, and the potter then breaks it. She doesn't pulverise it into tiny bits of dust, but it is broken into pieces, and this is all quite deliberate. Next, she prepares a gold cement, and with the cement she glues the pieces back together, and the result is far more beautiful and unique than the first bowl. That is a picture of the hand of God in the suffering of his servants, provided they are ready to submit to it. Julian Hardiman is a pastor and writer based in Cambridge. He wrote this marvellous book, The Joy of Service. Julian talks about, very honestly, uh, the challenges of his ministry, the crushing sense of needing to be better than he, he knew he was or could be at preaching, a major breakdown, mental breakdown. 
years of living on the edge of anxiety and depression, serious mental illness in the family, some extremely difficult relationships. And he says, I'm glad it all happened. I'm glad it all happened. Every single bit. Because the maturity that has been the embrace of weakness has been the operating principle for his life. God is making us more beautiful and stronger by this process of bringing trials into our lives. So can we start to think, to consider the trials in our life in a completely different way starting today? So that when they come, we don't spend all our emotional energy and all our time wondering, why on earth has this happened to me? Come on, be honest. That's what you do. I do it. We spend half of half more than half of our emotional energy thinking, oh, why has this happened to me? You know, but actually, could we get to the place where we thank God for what he's doing in our life through it to strengthen us and make us more beautiful? Knowing that he will enable me to help others more because of the transformed character. Now, the Apostle Paul, great hero of the Christian faith, do you know at one point he said, I despaired of life itself. I despaired of life itself. He was suicidal. He was so low. And at that point, he wrote some of the most beautiful words ever written. 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. You see what he's saying? God doesn't just make you stronger through the suffering, weakness, like the cricket bat. He doesn't just make you more beautiful like the kintsugi porcelain bowl. He also makes you someone who, can, who receives comfort in a far more profound way and can give it to others. You can only write that when you've been through it. A wise friend pointed out to me last week, our biggest problem isn't our pain, but how we respond to and think about our suffering. Joni Erickson was a very athletic teenage girl her father had been an olympic athlete i think she was a very accomplished swimmer and diver she was disabled by a terrible accident as a teenager she miscalculated the depth of some water and broke her neck she became a quadriplegic paralyzed from the shoulders down what did she become an example and an encouragement and a comfort to millions of people she wrote this sometimes god allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. We will stand amazed in the future to see the top side of the tapestry and how God has beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern 
for our good and his glory. And she's been wheelchair confined since she was a teenager. And she wrote, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my saviour, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognise me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Now there is someone, friends, who has learned how to consider it pure joy when she faces trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of her faith has produced perseverance and she's let it work its way through so that she is mature and complete, not lacking anything. And that is worth far, far more than an easy life. You know, the greatest example of God using a trial to accomplish something incredible and beautiful is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately where we want to sit today and at the start of every day and when we face trials is to go again to him and ask, Lord, show me what you're doing here because I know it has a purpose. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this letter thank you for your younger brother and uh, how you called him into service and how he gave his life for you but but you gave him such wisdom lord and as we listen to james help us to hear his voice and through this to hear your voice speaking to us and equipping us for life in your world so that our lives will count and matter and we'll be strong to live for you in our generation amen